Welcome to the Theotech Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Lim, and today I'll be speaking with Pastor Eliana Maxim, co-executive presbyter of the Seattle Presbytery. A presbytery is a decision-making network of churches that come together to share resources and discern what God is calling them to do. Pastor Eliana and I talk about the COVID-19 pandemic and what's happening at the church and presbytery level. But before we begin, I want to make a special invitation. As churches wrestle with how to respond to COVID-19, one thing to remember is that we're not alone. We're connected to each other. And as we lean into those connections by sharing ideas, stories, techniques, experiments, successes, and failures, as we speak the truth in love to one another, the whole body of Christ is built up. One way we're facilitating those conversations is through an online forum. We're calling it the Church Digital Transformation, or CDX Forum. Go to cdx.theotech.org, and you'll find a place to ask questions, share ideas, and co-create new theological and technological resources your church can use to thrive amidst and after the pandemic. Once again, that's cdx.theotech.org. And with that, let's dive into today's episode. Pastor Eliana, thank you for joining us on the show. Thank you, Prince. I appreciate the invitation. I was really uh, encouraged when I read one of your recent emails to the uh, Seattle Presbytery where you were acknowledging how many pastors who are solo pastors especially might be facing burnout. And uh, and you wrote to them like, take a break, take a week off from preaching, we can cover for you, lean into our connectional DNA, collegiality, and allow yourself the gift of respite. And I really like that, that you emphasize the connectional DNA part of kind of being in the Presbytery level. Um, because I think that it's so easy, even for myself growing up in a local church to kind of lose sight of that. We only see like this, we think this is our community, the people we see every Sunday, we forget that we're part of something so much bigger. Um, and I wanted to ask you like what stories you're hearing and seeing of how you've seen that connectional DNA help churches in the midst of this pandemic. Well, I appreciate you lifting that up, Chris, because I think that is something uniquely Presbyterian. Um, it's part of our foundations of being the church. It's part of our polity. um, And we draw on it from our theology that we are one body. Mm -hmm. And so um, being able to lean into that connectionalism is a way that makes us stronger. Interestingly, um, the, all the grants that we've been able to provide our churches have not been for churches to support themselves, Mm. which I think is, it's wonderful and surprising at the same time. Yeah. And I'm not sure why it surprises me. I mean, this is God's work anyway, right? But, um, but it's been because of the work that they're doing in their communities. And so they're asking for the presbytery to say, look, we're doing something awesome in our community to love our neighbors. COVID has made it harder and presented more challenges. Can the presbytery come alongside? Tell us that you believe in what we're doing and do it by giving us some money. Mm-hmm. And we're blessed in this presbytery to have the financial resources to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. So whether it's you know a church down in Enumclaw that is uh, has set up a food pantry and is actually cooking meals for homeless families, um, or whether it's providing shelter up in, in the, the Ballard area uh, for homeless folks or down in Burien for children who are being homeschooled and did not have access to internet. Mm. Um, the Presbytery stepping in and walking alongside our congregations and saying, how are you serving mm-hmm. the community 
and let us help shoulder that burden. We can do this together. Yeah, that's fantastic. And so it's, it is fascinating that it is supporting more of that missional aspect of what the congregations are already doing, not just like operational costs and things like that, that exactly. you might think is what the big risk is, but actually people are leaning in more into their mission as a result of this. Well, I mean, I, I'm convinced that this pandemic, and I've said this to several people in, in, in other places, has been this pandemic has actually forced the church to look at itself in the mirror and go down a path that it has reluctantly wanted to go down for the last 30 years or so. Mm-hmm. And suddenly we're finding ourselves forced into this reimagining and revisioning of what it means to be church. And as difficult as being in a pandemic is, this is also pretty exciting work that the church yeah. is being called into. And we're watching, I'm watching some leaders really rise to the occasion and to really be prophetic and creative and above all resilient in mm. the face of, of this virus. What are some of those stories that you might highlight of these leaders? And are they only pastors or are those also lay leaders who are stepping up and yeah, no, it's, you know, I'm com- it's a team. It's always, yeah. a team. there's always one person that kind of takes the lead or something like that, but you've got to have the team around you. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's not necessarily the technical things that people have been doing because, you know, even the pastors who had a hard time posting a photo on their Facebook page, learned to do a zoom worship and, mm-hmm. you know, early on that technical stuff, you can learn how to do that. I think it's more the mindset. It's more of this um, ability to adapt and then adopt Mm -hmm. a new way of being, of doing, of being present, of being able to redefine what does worship actually mean to us as a community? Mm -hmm. What's that going to look like? What does community mean to us? Um, Everything from how we engage with one another, how do you stay connected with your congregation? How do you actually live into being the church outside the four walls of a building you can't go into? Yep. And so leaders, both ordained and non-ordained, who are involved in those conversations and then are willing to take a risk and say, well, what if we try this? Or how about, how about this idea? That's where I'm seeing a lot of creativity and excitement. Mm-hmm. Not all of the ideas are successful. Um, And I would say a lot of them are like, well, that was a dud. We'll try something different. But the ability to do that for me is so reminiscent of the Acts church. Mm -hmm. You know, the first century church didn't know what the heck it was doing. Mm -hmm. And it was making it up as it went along. And there were a lot of mistakes made along the way, but they never gave up on each other and they never gave up trying to be innovative. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the spirit was actually leading them and they were responding and ending up in ways that they never expected. Exactly. Uh, I was thinking about that even with the diaconate forming because of the language barrier between the district right. with the widows and they're like, oh, we have to create this new role now uh, to make sure that we're fulfilling our calling. Yeah. And it raises up new leaders. I mean, people that maybe they themselves could never see themselves as being leaders. And somehow by opening ourselves up to however and wherever the spirit will blow, you're like, oh my gosh, these are, you know, and it has, it has nothing to do with youth or age or experience. It's just that ability 
to flex mm-hmm. and, to, and to move as the spirit blows. Mm-hmm. So the biggest, one of those big changes is that mindset that you're, that you're talking about where they're no longer kind of so afraid to let go of traditions that are now just completely lost and much more open to experimenting and being okay with failing. Um, exactly. And exactly. I remember one time at a meeting where someone shared about agile church, I think, and that came from like the software development world where we do agile software development because in the old days it was always like, okay, we're going to plan out phase one design phase two build phase three deploy. And it was just finding that people would build the wrong thing because in the time it took to build it, everything changed. And so you built a product that might've worked for like, you know, three years ago, but now it's like, uh, it's the wrong thing. And so that's how the agile method of like, let's try this experiment and then iterate with feedback from the customer on a very regular basis, like maybe once every two weeks or something. That's how that came out of the agile world. And I remember thinking about it in terms of church and being like, if the church can adopt the agile culture, that would be amazing, but it doesn't feel like it's anywhere near that right now, pre-pandemic, right? right and then right. now it's like, well, we have no choice. We have to become agile. <laughs> like, so let's go try. We have no choice. And, yeah. and that has been the history of the church. I mean, mm. since Constantinople, mm-hmm. um, it, it has really followed whatever the culture or the business world is adopted. And it's only changed when it had to change. Mm. That's interesting. And um, we're not, we're, we're really not big on being the leaders or at the forefront of innovation. That's not church. And, and actually, you know, if you look at it historically, particularly the Western Christian church spent so much of its time creating itself into an institution. Yeah. And we all know that institutions are these monolithic structures that to make any decision needs to go through 15 different mazes. And, Mm -hmm. and then it's like trying to steer, you know, the queen Mary. Mm -hmm. So I think what, what we've been forced into now is that we're realizing that in order to move agilely, to think agilely, we actually have to shed a lot of the things that we're, keeping us cemented in place. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a sense of freedom of saying, well, we actually don't need a physical location for worship. Yeah. We actually don't need a physical location or even a particular format to study scripture together or to have fellowship. Mm-hmm. And that has forced us to rethink a lot of what we do, including things that we thought were sacrosanct like Hmm. you know our order of liturgy it's like Mm -hmm. oh my gosh we there can be no peace because we can't share the peace of christ with each other (laughs) like what do you mean you can't share the peace of christ Uh with each other and it's because somehow or another it got ingrained in our mind that the only way we could do it was to shake hands Mm. um but what do we really mean when we are sharing the peace of christ and so it's forced theological conversations in places where we thought we just needed to find a technical fix. Mm-hmm. And that's the easy way. The challenge and what's exciting is to be able to say and sit down and go, but wait a minute, why have we been sharing the peace of Christ? Yeah. What is it we're trying to accomplish with that? Um, and so that really grants us permission and freedom to begin to have a whole new conversation mm-hmm. about why we do what we do and who we are or, or who we say we are. Mm-hmm. And how we can embody that maybe even in our virtual spaces or in a time when we can't be together. 
And that's where like, when you said that the church doesn't innovate, I was thinking about maybe the institution doesn't because it's trying to conserve itself. But in terms of the people of God, you know, that's been innovative from day one when the spirit was given and like, they're just creating all these crazy new forms. And it's like, if our, if our polity can kind of even adapt to like, to this time, that can be that unleashing of the saints and of our local churches more and more like you're describing with like the mission orientedness and everything like that. It just feels like the polity, the institution can be kind of reformed to end up fulfilling its function again of like kind of preserving that ability for the saints to do the innovation and the ministry and everything at the front lines. And, and sometimes it's that innovation that, that will lead the way for a new understanding and a new um, interpretation of what we believe. So for example, yeah. when the pandemic first started and our, everyone uh, stopped going to the church and we were worshiping from our homes, um, the first Sunday of the month rolled around and questions started coming in like, oh my gosh, how do we, do, how do we celebrate communion? Uh-huh. How do we participate in the sacrament? And so, you know, people were asking, what, what does Louisville, which means what does our Office of General Assembly, our denomination, yeah. our denominational headquarters, what do they say? How, how do they say we should do this? Mm-hmm. So it took a while to try to get an answer. And, you know, they got all these people together. In the meanwhile, I, I, I know I was telling churches, you do what you need to do mm-hmm. to feed your people. Mm-hmm. So that means that you do it virtually and everyone at home is pouring grape juice and having a Ritz cracker or whatever with it, mm-hmm. go for it. Interestingly, the first authoritative uh, interpretation that was provided was uh, their opinion that we should hold off on communion until we can be together again. Oh, I didn't know that. And so I get this document and I'm like, and it's, and it's like a, almost a week after I told everybody to go ahead and do it. And I'm like, (laughs) yikes, I'm in trouble. Uh Here comes the excommunication. Um, And I just thought, I'm just going to sit on this because this does not feel spirit led. Mm. I felt the cries of the people asking for communion in a time of a global pandemic. That was the movement of the spirit Mm. of people crying out for God. Mm-hmm. And this was a, an advice or a guideline based on books mm-hmm. and, and theological truths that we held before the pandemic. Mm-hmm. So we kept quiet, several of us who had done this, and we just said, we'll see what happens. And it's interesting that within the, less than a week later, they reversed themselves. And the document that they they actually made available to everyone was like, you do what you need to do. And here are some possibilities Ah. or ideas of what you could do. And and I thought here was an example of the church being the church and leading the way. And then let the theologians and the ecclesiologists and all those other learned people come up with a way to provide the framework. But Mm -hmm. the spirit will not be stymied. Mm-hmm. And that people cannot be denied access to God. Um, that is is something that we cannot do. Yeah, that's a really powerful contrast, I think, of of our conception of authority in a sense, right? Like, is it is the authority of our denomination coming from its kind of official institutional power? Or is it actually coming from its service, where really they're providing, like, here's some possibilities that we've thought through as theologians and ecclesiologists, and letting it be kind of up to the conscience of the sessions and pastors and 
congregations to discern what the spirit is leading them to do in their context, because it's impossible to know from Louisville what everybody else is going through. Right. Right. And so, so that's like, that's a, to me, like just hearing that's really a, a really great distinction between there is kind of more of that. Here's the right answer. Follow this versus like, Hey, I'm here to serve you. And this is what you can take into consideration as you make your decisions. But the second one is so empowering Absolutely. for, you know, kind of like for everybody else. Whereas the first one's kind of like, what? Do you really know what's going on? Like, are you sure? Um, And the more, I'm just excited to hear that because the more that I see our denominational structures become more like the latter, the more it's going to be equipping and unleashing the saints rather than kind of just conserving uh, a former traditional understanding that doesn't make sense in the new context. So when I said that the church has been moving in this direction very, very slowly for the last 30, 40 years, um, I didn't mean just the local congregations. I mean the denomination. Yeah. Um, because this was really kind of a unique way of interpreting uh, the action taken by congregations, local congregations. Mm. Interestingly, it's laid the groundwork now that the conversations happening around, well, what if you need to ordain a minister during quarantine? Mm-hmm. You know, that's always been done in a worship service with laying on of hands and so can you still ordain? Well, what are, what are churches doing? Are they ordaining elders? Mm-hmm. We're ordaining elders. Um, we're installing pastors. We have a church that's going to be installing a new pastor virtually. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a pastor who interviewed during, um, before COVID, was a finalist right at the, at the start of COVID, and um, did his candidating, and everything got called, elected, and is going to be installed. Mm-hmm. in quarantine we're having to to be flexible this way have you found pushback where people say that well theologically the laying on of hands is so central to that that act of ordination that it could be okay for now to give them authority in our polity but they're not truly you know ordained until that laying on of hands has happened has there been any pushback like that i don't know if it's i, I wouldn't characterize it as pushback necessarily but there have been conversations and i think that's really healthy yeah because it really forces us to examine what we believe um yeah. we've been very complacent christians i don't know about you but i know i have mm. i mean things are the way they are because they have always been that way we always <laughs> do them that way and so i'm not going to question it yeah um and it's very easy this is a very easy faith to mm. follow yeah. if that's if that's the faith that you're following. But when you're confronted with situations like this, where you actually have to sit down and engage in conversation about why you do what you do, the way you do it, it starts to force you to examine what are your beliefs? What are the values? Um, What did Jesus say about this? Mm -hmm. Um, So I think it it provides us a fuller and deeper um, experience of our own faith. In mm-hmm. practice of it, have you found um, have you found that the the kind of season of panic and emergency has passed sufficiently for churches, pastors, elders, and other people to take the time that they need to think through these things at large, or do you find that it's still in a situation where it's like, oh, how do we survive for this coming Sunday? Like, how are we going to make it to the next? I, I think we're we're past the the panic survival thing. I think people mm-hmm. have, have uh, for the most part fallen into a rhythm mm-hmm. you know, their virtual rhythm and and churches you know all of our churches are doing things differently you know some of them are live um, some of them are taped 
Some of them are not doing anything online, but doing everything by phone and by script, sending oh. out materials. So yeah. it's all over the place, right? Yeah. Um, what I think we're, we're entering into is we're entering a season of, of exhaustion, physical exhaustion. Mm. And what I'm seeing coming up um, in the not too distant future is going to be a season of, of uh, tremendous lament. We haven't had an opportunity to grieve mm. you know, as community. We, you know, there's a hundred thousand people who have died because of coronavirus, mm-hmm. and most of them have not been able to have a memorial or burial um, with their loved ones. Yeah, at some point, that's going to all have to happen, and it's mm-hmm. going to be this incredible season of of deep, deep mourning. Mm. I think we're, we're going to have to experience and the church is going to need to know how to uh, be present and respond to that deep grief that so many will express. Mm-hmm. We've been able to kind of shove it to the back of our mind because so many other things have been pressing, you know, mainly I can't get infected, you know, Oh, okay. got to keep my hands clean. Don't touch my face. Uh, people die, but you know, it's over there and I can't be with them when they die. And then we can't, celebrate their life together when they're dead. Um, but at some point that's going to change and we are going to be able to have memorial services and we are going to be mm-hmm. able to acknowledge the death of so many people. And I think that's going to be a really painful period for us to, to live. Yeah. And even, even aside from Corona concerns, there's also the economic side where so many people lost their jobs. That's there's so much to more there. Year. And like, yes. what does it mean for their families and livelihoods? That's a, yeah, that's a whole nother ongoing, <laughs> ongoing pastoral concern, not just a, not just a one time. Yeah. Well, for those of us that are here in the Seattle area, you know, we've gone from a, a community that had what about 3% unemployment and was considered one of the most affluent cities in the country mm. um, to now having close to 15% unemployment mm-hmm. and um, a significant rise in the numbers of people on the street of people experiencing food insecurity and uh, home insecurity Um, i think those realities are going to be with us for quite a while Mm -hmm. which is an opportunity i suppose for our churches to consider what we can do to serve be present yeah Yeah. i know that one of the things in your recent uh mail was that you, you wrote that i pray that church leadership will be more engaged in conversations around the long view of being church and relevant to their communities rather than anxiously looking for when to re-enter the building because the governor is about to say that, okay, you can meet outdoors or you can come right. back with 50 people or something. And um, what are you, you know, what are you noticing there? Is there, is there a big drive among our churches to say, Hey, we have to, you know, now that we can, we, this is the most important thing for us to do. Or is it having more of that long view of imagination of like, okay, this could be possible for, you know, the next decade or something like what, what are people thinking? It's, it's been surprising to me. Very few of our churches have had that anxiety about, I got to get back into the building. Hmm. Um, There's, there's a real um, recognition that um, part of our faith is to care for one another, particularly for those that are vulnerable amongst us. Yeah. And that the greatest show of love that we can have is to not try to get everybody back in the building and, breathing and coughing on each other. So mm-hmm. I, I've been really pleasantly surprised that that has not been an issue with the exception of a couple of churches that, you know, keep pushing back and, and it's okay. I keep pushing back on them as well. <laughs> um, 
And I think the invitation that we've issued to our churches to take the long view really is an invitation that I wish um, churches would take at all times, not just during a pandemic. Yeah. Um, churches really need to be thinking not so much in terms of what do I do for this Sunday's worship and how do I make sure that everybody's needs are met this coming Sunday, but really what is God calling us as a faith community to do and be mm -hmm. in this time at this place? And what do I need or what does this faith community need to be able to live into that reality? Mm -hmm. um, that really sets a whole set of different conversations and different engagements um, for people yeah. uh, in the church to really get out there and be in community and in relationship with people who necessarily would never worship inside of their church. Mm -hmm. um, to be able to identify what are the needs and what are the gifts um, in their community. Because it's not, not necessarily just the church serving a need in the community, but it's also that community the church is located in, that community has a lot to teach that church. Yeah. So how can the congregation be blessed by the surrounding community. So the long view means you're looking ahead, not just at the ways that you're going to be church and serve your community, but also how are you going to be blessed as a faith community by the community that God has put you in? And mm -hmm. what can you learn from this experience and these relationships? Yeah. There is this one um, phrase that I was, that I've been thinking of regarding just like churches and at first I talked about it as a second reformation where churches would shift from being a product that's consumed to a platform that empowers people mm -hmm. um, to build on top of it. And it sounded like a great idea, but it's so hard because for the longest time pre pandemic, um, so much of the concerns were like you said, next Sunday and then operational, the building, whatever, you know, the activities that happen in the church and what you described, it sounds fascinating because if our churches could become more of that platform, then your community is actually contributing to it. Kind of like, YouTube is not a product, it's a platform where anybody can post their content, their ideas, their videos, their, you know, and the church could become a place like that too, where actually all the saints can be showcasing kind of the ways God's using them uh, to bear witness to the kingdom. And it becomes this thing that you can invite your neighborhood or your community or digital neighborhood into like, hey, look at this, this is what's happening. Um, so yeah, I'm just excited and hopeful that that can take place, especially now that a lot of the, a lot of the things that we're just consuming our attention before can't happen anymore. Um, well, I, yeah. I was going to say one, one other way to look at this um, that, that I like to, to phrase it is um, we talk about the church moving from being a transactional experience to being a transformative experience. Mm -hmm. So, you know, for too long, we've seen the church as being, I go and I tithe or I pledge and I get Christianity in return. <laughs> so I'm paying for a product and I get it. And, and that's the yeah. transaction that's, that's happening. Yeah. Um, what we what we were created to do, and what our our commission by Christ is for us to be transformative, not just for us to transform lives mm -hmm. by discipling others, but also to be transformed ourselves mm -hmm. by allowing others to disciple us. So here we have this opportunity because of the pandemic, we can't do transactional ministry very yes. well. Yes. When we're isolated, yep. but we can be transformative. Mm -hmm. And that is, that is my great hope. And I think that's the promise of the church for the 21st century is that we, we found out through happenstance 
we actually can be what we were always meant to be. Thank you, Pastor Eliana, for those closing thoughts. As we face a season of lament and economic fallout, let's follow the Holy Spirit's leading into transformative rather than transactional ministry. Thanks to all the people supporting us on Patreon for making this episode possible. If you liked what you heard today and want to contribute to our future work, become a monthly sponsor at patreon.com theotech. Stay safe and God bless.